Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 73. Glad to be back on the program with you. Before I get started with the content for today, I'd like to ask everyone, if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. Also, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page, and go on over to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Sign up for my email list, and you'll get a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same read by yours truly, Forgotten Founders. So go on over there and get that. I, don't, I send about maybe one or two emails a week, usually. Uh, there are some days I'll send you more, like when we were running our great deal at LearnTrueHistory.com. I sent you several emails, but um, uh, I would love to have you on the email list and uh, to keep you updated with some things that are going on. I think that the target date for all of the great promotions I'm going to do for my forthcoming How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America will start around June 1st. So uh, start looking for those. Uh, I've got some things in the works right now, but it's going to be about another six weeks or so before those promotions are ready. The book doesn't come out till September, so that'll give us about three months to uh, run these early promotions. So I uh, hope you're going to go over there and check that out. All right, so let's start with the content for today. And actually, this is going to cover something I published last week um, at uh, the Abbeville Institute, The Hard Hand of War, and then uh, Lou Rockwell uh, covered it, or at least reran it yesterday at lourockwell.com. And it's a piece about... Uh, the Union occupation of North Alabama during the war, and then also the Battle of Columbus. And so what I'm going to do is go into a little more detail about the Battle of Columbus itself, because last week was uh, a week of anniversaries. We had uh, the surrender of Lee at Appomattox, we had the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and then we had, on April 16th, we had the anniversary, the 152nd anniversary of the Battle of Columbus. And um, a lot of people are not aware or familiar with that particular battle. It was the last major battle of the war east of the Mississippi. It took place after Lincoln had been assassinated and after Lee had already surrendered the Army of Virginia. But nobody knew it. And so it's considered to be this last major battle. Uh, and it took place after the war was kind of over. Um, and it's an, it's an important battle because it showed a number of things that had happened near the end of the war. Everyone's familiar with Sherman's March to the Sea, which started uh, in Georgia and concluded essentially in South Carolina with the burning of Columbia, uh, South Carolina. But not many people are aware of the Union's occupation of North Alabama and then also the subsequent march through Alabama that culminated where that particular army ended up in um, LaGrange, Georgia. They're on their way to Macon. Uh, so the idea was the same. They were going to go through, take out uh, Montgomery, move through Alabama, of course, uh, Montgomery, the original capital of the Confederacy, and then move through 
uh, into Georgia and take out any industrial capacity that the South had left. And that actually put Columbus in the crosshairs. Columbus, Georgia was the second largest industrial center in the South outside of Richmond. Now, of course, by April of 1865, Richmond had already folded. In fact, it had already been burned. Now, Richmond was burned by the people of Richmond themselves to try to keep uh, various elements of the industrial district out of Union hands. But Columbus was it in terms of industrial production in the South by April of 1865. And, of course, the Union knew that. Um, so they wanted that particular element of the Confederacy to fold. They didn't want the uh, Confederate government to have any uh, uh, capacity to manufacture weapons or clothing or anything that the uh, Southern Army might have needed. And Columbus had been untouched by the war um, in, in this part. I mean, it was, it was on the Chattahoochee River, uh, and um, you could take the Chattahoochee essentially out to the Gulf of Mexico. It still remained almost open. Uh, during the entire war. And so this was a major jewel for the Confederacy to hold on to uh, Columbus, Georgia. Now, um, this particular battle be- or this particular battle happened as a result, as I said, of this northern occupation of North Alabama, which began pretty early in the war, 1862. And the two books that I covered in this uh, piece, The Hard Hand of War, were uh, Joseph Danielson's War's Desolating Scourge, The Union's Occupation of North Alabama, which was published by the University of Ca- Press of Kansas in 2012, and also Charles Musulia's Columbus, Georgia, 1865, The Last True Battle of the Civil War, which was published by the University of Alabama Press in 2010. So uh, both of those books are, are worth getting. Um, there are several other books that cover you know, uh, the war on Southern civilians, and uh, what that did to the South. Uh, but these two books are, are focused on a particular element of that uh, occupation. So the occupation of North Alabama began, as I said, in 1862. And what uh, Danielson finds when, when he wrote this book, or did his research for the book, is that Southern civilians uh, throughout the entire uh, three years, essentially, they were, that this part of the uh, South was occupied, never really capitulated to Union control. They, they resisted, and so the Union Army eventually adopted a very hard hand of war, quote-unquote, policy towards Southern civilians, which included taking food, uh, seizing crops, taking clothes, and other things. And basically, this was being seized from Southern women. Uh, these, uh, most of the men had gone off to fight. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of men around to, uh, to resist. And so this uh, occupation policy was uh, generally carried out against women and children, this hard hand of war. And I think that's something that uh, most Americans don't really realize. They think that, oh, well, you know, when the Union Army occupied these areas, there were men resisting, and uh, you had all these problems because of men. No, it was really because of women. In fact, what Danielson found is that the women were much more ardent patriots than the men at times. These women chastised men into not joining up, and so a lot of men would join up for the army because the women were behind the war. Uh, when the war was over, women, uh, Danielson found that the women were more depressed than the men. They, they, again, they criticized men for surrendering. They thought, you know, what are you doing? Why did we suffer for all these years just so you could surrender? Um, and so this is in uh, direct uh, contradiction to people like Drew Gilpin Faust, who uh, published a book 
back in the 90s entitled, or actually back in the 80s, I believe, entitled Confederate Nationalism, where she, she basically found that women weren't really behind the war, and uh, this was all a lie of the great lost cause. Um, if you actually read the primary material, you'll find the, the exact opposite was true. Um, and so the real lie is perpetuated by people like Drew Gilpin Faust, who use this, this book and others, which uh, were very critical of the South, to uh, gain a position as president of Harvard University. So um, it, it pays to, uh, to be anti-South uh, at, in the uh, academic world. But uh, Danielson found that, no, it was the women uh, in the South who um, were more ardent patriots than, than the men at times. And so uh, by 1865, this occupation of North Alabama had taken a very serious turn. And the Union Army used that area of Alabama as a springboard into moving south towards Montgomery. Now, the Union Cavalry under the command of James Harrison Wilson and Emory Upton had about 13,000 men, and they had repeating rifles. Uh, The Confederate defenders that they came across in this march through Alabama numbered no more than about 2,000 at any given time, and they had single-shot muzzle-loading rifles. So, they were vastly outnumbered, outgunned, uh, out, the, the Union had better technology. Uh, and so this was going to be a, a surefire victory for the Union Army. It was just a matter of time. In fact, uh, as the Union Army moved south, they encountered some resistance. They eventually encountered Nathan Bedford Forrest, and they gave uh, Forrest his only defeat of the war. This was at the Battle of Selma. Uh, they also moved through Montgomery. There was really nothing left in Montgomery when they got there. The civilians had all fled. Uh, so this march from North Alabama to Columbus was fairly uneventful. I mean, the Battle of Selma was, was famous because Forrest was defeated, but he only had 2,000 men. Uh, There's no way he was going to win. So uh, by the time the Union Army got to Columbus, Georgia, it was a, a foregone conclusion that Columbus would probably fall. So Looking at this battle and how this thing is going to set up, the, uh, the Confederate defenders of Columbus uh, had built several fortifications around the city on the Alabama side, which is present-day Phoenix City, Alabama. But these, they had so few men, they couldn't even uh, man these positions. There was one famous fort uh, overlooking the river that uh, the, the outline of the fort is still there to this day. Uh, but again, there was nobody to man it. Uh, They had so few men, they had about a 1,000 men at the most to defend the city. There's also another interesting part that I didn't, there's several things I'm going to talk about that I didn't bring up in the piece. The uh, man who was organizing the defenses of the Confederacy was a Prussian uh, named von Zimken, and uh, he actually wrote back to the Confederate government that he had dozens and dozens of slaves uh, volunteering to fight to defend the city. And he asked if he could put these men into the service of the Confederate Army. And uh, he was denied uh, from the Confederate government. But uh, it goes to show that uh, these, these people of, of Columbus, white and black, were willing to uh, lay down their lives to defend the city from what they saw as an occupation, an invading army. There were also slaves, of course, who were happy to see the Union Army show up. And there are, there are, there's documentation of that. But uh, the slaves were also highly concerned about some of the activities that were going on around Columbus and in Phoenix City after the city was sacked. So you had the defenses being planned, uh, and everyone knew the Union Army was coming. They didn't know what day it was going to show up. 
And so the battle actually takes place on Easter Sunday, April 16th, 1865. So again, 152nd anniversary this past Sunday was Easter Sunday. And it was said that the day of the uh, battle, everyone went to church, and uh, they were stuffing the plates full of money, because uh, Confederate money, because they hoped that they would have some divine intercession to help them win this battle. They knew it wasn't going to be easy. They knew that uh, the Union Army was going to vastly outnumber them, and they just hoped they would make it through fairly unscathed. So the Union Army shows up, and uh, what the Confederate... Uh, defenses, one of the things they had done, there were two bridges crossing from uh, Alabama into Columbus. The Confederacy defended one of the bridges. They actually had a battery position on one side, and then down the end of the other bridge, they had set up a cannon. These were covered bridges, and uh, actually the the bridges were built by a man named Horace King, and uh, Horace King was a free free, uh, black man. He was a former slave, he was uh, freed by a man named um, uh, Godwin, and uh, he became an engineer, and he learned how to build bridges. Uh, he owned a, a very large lumber company, and his, uh, his uh, services were contracted by the Confederacy, in fact, conscripted at one point by the Confederacy, that they could get lumber to build uh, the CSS Jackson, which was being constructed in Columbus. This was a very large ironclad, which was designed to, uh, to patrol the Chattahoochee and keep the Union Army off the Chattahoochee. It was almost finished on the day of the battle. It was moored at, uh, in Columbus at the old Ironworks building. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But Horace King had built both of these covered bridges. And he had built bridges all, uh, all down the Chattahoochee. Uh, one of his bridges still survives. Uh, and he had also designed the staircase in the uh, Capitol building up Montgomery. So he was a, ver- a very good engineer, a very good carpenter. Uh, and he owned a very profitable lumber company. Again, a, 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 freed, a freedman, a, a former slave, who had made uh, quite a bit of money in the South. Um, so uh, one of the bridges, one of the covered bridges was defended. The other, they pulled up the planks of the bridge, and they stuffed it with cotton bales soaked in oil. And the idea was that uh, they would leave that bridge undefended. And so when the Union Army showed up, they would see that bridge was undefended, and they would attack there. And that's exactly what they wanted because the Confederacy also had a, battle, a battery set up about an, a mile away from this bridge, and when they would see the Union Army show up, they would start opening fire on the Union Cavalry. So the Cavalry at this point, the Union Cavalry, was um, using tactics that uh, we would later call Blitzkrieg or the, uh, the Schlieffen Plan uh, during World War I. The idea was speed, mobility, and surprise. And that's exactly what, uh, what the cavalry hoped to do. They hoped to overwhelm the city very quickly. So when they show up and they see one bridge is undefended, they say, we're going to attack. And that's exactly what they did. So um, on Easter Sunday, the Union car- cavalry shows up and they attack that bridge. And the Confederate battery about a mile away opens fire. The bridge is set on fire and the, uh, it was a, a, a turkey shoot for a little while. And so the Union cavalry is stopped. They suffer some casualties as they try to take that bridge, and they retreat. It was also said the day of the battle that uh, the women of Columbus had put on black dresses, and they were watching, they were standing on the roofs of the houses uh, watching uh, the, the uh, battle take place. It was said they were like little angels of death on top of the, of the roofs of the houses. Also, um, just to mention what Columbus produced, um, again, going back to the industrial production, uh, they had a very famous sword factory. Uh, was owned by another uh, Prussian, this, this time a Jewish Prussian named Hyman, and he produced some of the best swords uh, in the Confederacy. Uh, 
So you had that. You also had uh, textiles being produced in Columbus, rubber cloth, uh, boots, bagging, barrels, uh, tobacco, firearms, uh, iron products. There was a very large iron foundry in Columbus. So Columbus had all kinds of industrial goods, again, that the Union Army wanted to ensure that the city couldn't produce anymore. So that initial attack has stopped at the uh, what's now the Dillingham Street Bridge. At that time, uh, it was called Bridge Street. And um, the attack then is going to commence over on what's now the 14th Street Bridge. At that time, it was called Franklin Street. So the uh, Union Army retreats. Wilson finally shows up uh, with the majority of his men, and they decide on a night attack. Now, this was unprecedented. Uh, This is a time before we had night vision goggles and all the things that we can do today so that we can attack at night. But this was a night attack, and it was going to take place in a night that was uh, pitch black. It was a new moon. There was uh, very little light. And so the Confederacy did have breastworks set up along a road leading down through Alabama towards uh, what's now the 14th Street Bridge. And the Union Army attacks down this road. Well, the Confederacy opens fire, but what they find is that the Union had kind of gotten down to some ravines, and so when they were firing, they were shooting over top of the Union soldiers, and eventually these guys come up over the breastworks and uh, take the positions. And so now both Union and Confederate soldier are running down uh, the road towards the 14th Street Bridge, and the Confederacy will actually uh, light a couple of houses on fire so they can see Uh, the Union Army. But it was so disorganized and disorienting that everyone started running across the bridge that was supposed to be defended by this cannon. And when uh, the men got on the bridge, the Confederacy didn't open fire because they'd been shooting at their own men. So the Union takes the the bridge, takes the position, and the route was on. Essentially, there was um, very little that uh, the defenders on the Columbus side of the bridge could do uh, because once the bridge was open, the Union Army ran through it pretty quickly. Uh, there was some fighting on the Columbus side. Uh, there was actually a very famous house on the uh, Columbus side. It, uh, people knew it after the war as the Mott House. Uh, and this house just burned down a couple of years ago. It was uh, being uh, refurbished uh, to be made into a, a, a somewhat of a museum, a conference center, uh, and a tool caught on fire and burned the entire house down. It was one of the last... Uh, Chattahoochee River plantation surviving, um, and it's a it was a beautiful old Georgian style architecture home, uh, known as the Mott House because of the guy that owned it named Randolph Mott. He um, was at one time a mayor of Columbus, uh, but he was a Unionist. And uh, after the after the city was occupied, uh, the Union Army used that home for a brief period of time as its headquarters. Mott opened the doors to the Union Army and said, "Yeah, come on in. Uh, we'll, we'll let you use. I'll let you use my home." As, uh, as this particular as a staging point for the rest of the occupation for the Union Army in Columbus. But the home was actually built by a man named James S. Calhoun. And James S. Calhoun was related to John C. Calhoun. Uh, and James S. Calhoun was a um, one-time mayor of Columbus in the 1830s, right around the time that the city uh, was founded. And uh, he later served as governor of New Mexico Territory, appointed that position by President Millard Fillmore. And uh, when he died, um, he was actually, he, he had, um, he was very ill, 
and he had constructed his own coffin, and he was actually bringing it back to Georgia so he could be buried in Georgia. But he died in St. Louis, Missouri on the way back for his, I mean, here this is kind of morbid, but the guy has his own coffin. He knows he's going to die. He's coming back to Georgia so he can be buried in Georgia. That's where he wanted to be. He didn't want to be buried in the West or somewhere else. He wanted to be buried in Georgia, uh, but he died en route and was later buried in St. Louis. So the original house was built by James S. Calhoun. Uh, and um, it was only known as the Mott House because of the Union occupation. So it goes to show you how things you know, change because of who is in, involved in writing the history of things. Um, but the Mott House, a beautiful old house, and uh, Randolph Mott uh, had about two acres of land on the river, and he was also a slaveholder. And In fact, when the Union Army left, uh, left Columbus. They, they freed uh, Mott's slaves, and he couldn't understand this. He said, you know, wait a second here. I supported you. Why are you freeing my slaves? I thought this war was about, uh, you know, the Union, and that's it. I was a Union man. I supported the Union. Uh, and so he was a little taken aback that the Union policy had shifted during the war uh, to one of emancipation. But uh, it's, uh, so the, the Union, Ar- Union Army takes the city, and uh, Wilson occupies the Mott House, or the Calhoun House, and uh, they begin a policy of punishing the citizens of Columbus. In fact, several prominent citizens showed up at the Mott House and asked Wilson if he would take their cotton, they had been storing cotton along the river, if he would just take their cotton and leave the city, if he wouldn't burn anything. And uh, Wilson was fairly vindictive in this. He he uh, said, you know, well, this is a bribe, and I'm not going to take that. In fact, because you bribe me, I'm going to burn all of your cotton. So that's what they proceeded to start burning the cotton warehouses so that the uh, people of Columbus had nothing to really trade, uh, uh, nothing of value to really trade for anything, no food uh, uh, to, to, uh, to, to acquire with their cotton. And then they also burned every factory in town. The only exception was the city's grist mill, which still stands on the river, um, they, they left that alone, but they burned down every factory in town, Hyman's Sword Factory. They burned down all the, all the uh, cotton mills. They burned anything that could be used for the Confederate Army. So this was, again, wanton destruction. This was, this was total war. They were going to go through and burn anything that could be used by the Union Army or by the Confederate Army. And they also, the Union soldiers also marauded through the town. They broke into the city's bank. Uh, they stole a whole bunch of Confederate money. Even though they knew it was worthless, they stole it anyways. Uh, they broke into jewelry stores, uh, the ones that had been left, and they stole jewelry. They broke into sh- clothing stores and shoe stores and stole shoes and clothing. Uh, they looted houses, uh, stole valuables. In fact, um, you know, one slave remarked that these people had uh, nasty hair, ugly hair, actually, I think is the term they use. Uh, these ugly-haired Union soldiers were breaking into homes, and they didn't understand what was going on. Um, they, uh, they looted through the homes took anything they wanted. Uh, so the, the uh, slave population was also suffering because of this. Uh, they're being intimidated. They're, they're fearful of their lives and their safety. Uh, and this was going on not just in Columbus, but in surrounding areas around Columbus and Alabama, what was called Girard. Uh, there's actually a very famous, uh, there's, there's a woman that lives near here. She's, um, she's, uh, her, she's well over 100 years old, and she can remember uh, her grandparents talking about the day that the Yankees came through uh, through this area, and that her uh, mother was wanting, her grandmother was wanting to uh, not feed these people, but her grandfather said, no, 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 feed them. 
because if we don't, they're going to do worse. So they ended up setting up, you know, a, a table for them so they could feed them so they would just leave their house alone. So this is the general fear that these people had uh, around Columbus and in, in the Alabama side. And so they also burned the city. Um, they, uh, they were lighting off munitions. They had found, you know, thousands and thousands of rounds of munition in Columbus, and they just started blowing the stuff up. It was like Fourth of July. Uh, and people remarked, people were terrified of this because they had, you know, cannonballs going off and munition going off and black powder going off. This is the things that the Union was doing. They were essentially destroying the city. Also, the CSS Jackson, which had been moored at the, uh, the ironworks there in Columbus, was burned. They, they set it adrift and burned it. And it burned down the Chattahoochee River till it got stuck in the mud and uh, burned to the water line. Uh, the iron was later uh, salvaged and used for all kinds of things, uh, but uh, some of it uh, still survives. And in fact, the hull of the ship was stuck in the mud until the 1960s. Uh, that's when the U.S. Army went and got it out. Uh, they actually dynamited half the ship. They put a big hole in the middle of it to take it out in sections. But that uh, ship is, uh, still survives in, uh, in the Port Columbus uh, Civil War, quote-unquote Civil War Naval Museum in Columbus, Georgia, the bottom half of the ship. Uh, it's a pretty impressive thing to see. The iron still is there, too. They have a lot of the iron for the iron plating. Uh, but um, that, that Port Columbus Civil War Naval Museum used to be the Confederate Naval Museum, but uh, because they wanted to be more politically correct and inclusive, they, um, they called it the Port Columbus Civil War Naval Museum. And they actually lost a lot of funding because of that. Um, but it has the CSS Jackson, also the stern of the CSS Chattahoochee, uh, which was another ship that, was, uh, that sank in the Chattahoochee River uh, during the war. But um, so you've got Wilson moving through and um, destroying the city. And then he leaves, and they're going to march on to Macon. That was the point. They get to LaGrange and find out that the war is over, and that's that. So uh, now, there was also another very famous defender of the city. His name was John Stythe Pemberton. And John Stythe Pemberton was wounded in the battle. He was actually slashed across his chest with a saber. And while he's recovering from his wounds, he's given an opiate. He's, he's given laudanum uh, to, uh, to go, get over the pain. Well, he becomes addicted to this opium, and so he starts, uh, Pemberton was a chemist, and he made uh, perfumes and colognes. Uh, the women of Columbus apparently loved his stuff, his, his, uh, his perfumes, uh, but he also made elixirs for pain and other things. So he develops an elixir uh, that he calls uh, French wine of cola, and uh, it has just a little shot that you take, and it has cocaine in it, uh, actually, you know, the drug cocaine. Uh, to, and um, people start using this to get over headache, headaches and pain and other things. Well, eventually this becomes uh, a very popular drink. Uh, he takes the drug out of it, and he um, mixes it up, and it becomes what we know as a soft drink, and it becomes known as Coca-Cola. And that's because he tried to sell the drink into Atlanta, and of course Atlanta's a dry county, so you couldn't have uh, wine in the, um, in the uh, name uh, because... Uh, that would be an alcoholic beverage. So uh, he uh, calls it Coca-Cola, and he eventually sells it for a pretty fair amount of money. But, um, you know, of course, Coca-Cola becomes an international sensation. Uh, Pemberton never made as much money, and because he used this product so much, he and his son both, they used the product so much because it had that carcinogenic element to it, the, the cocaine, uh, which is, uh, you know, ingesting that is just horrible for your body, but also for your stomach. Uh, he actually died of stomach cancer from taking this, uh, this product. So, but of course, Coca-Cola becomes a very prominent drink. And in fact, there was another company in Columbus that owned 
the rights to Coca-Cola for years, uh, and they ended up selling it on. But Atlanta often claims to be the, the uh, home of Coca-Cola, but it was actually Columbus, Georgia that was the home of Coca-Cola. And same thing with RC Cola. Uh, RC Cola was actually developed in Columbus, Georgia as well. Um, so Columbus, Georgia has a very unique and interesting history. It actually goes back, if you just study the history of Columbus, uh, back to the uh, Paleo-Indians. Um, you've got some uh, Indian sites in Columbus that are th- uh, thousands of years old. Uh, but uh, this particular battle was indicative of this Union hard hand of war policy. It was go through, take out anything that the, uh, that the uh, South could use, inflict war on the civilian population, make it to where they don't want to resist. And I think that was the key. Uh, Wilson was aware that if he could um, render this particular city useless to the Confederacy and also wage war on the civilian population, uh, would break their morale or break their will to fight. What's interesting is that after the war was over, uh, of course, uh, the city's been burned. It comes right back. Um, Some of that, though, was from what they called uh, uh, foreign investment. There were northerners who came in and started investing in Columbus. In fact, um, Columbus, Georgia, was the home of of the man who was known as the father of the southern railway railway system, uh, Samuel Spencer. Uh, He was a Confederate soldier. And he acquired capital from the north to build up the southern rail lines, which had all been destroyed during the war, uh, for the most part. There weren't really any lo- working locomotives, or the rail lines were pretty much destroyed in the south. So um, uh, you didn't have a whole lot of uh, you know, transportation options in the south after the war. Uh, so you had that. Also, the first Confederate Memorial Day uh, was held in Columbus. And in fact, the whole idea of Memorial Day was uh, born in the south. Uh, this was held in 1866 at what's called Linwood Cemetery uh, in Columbus, Georgia, April of 1866, uh, commemorating the the one-year anniversary of the Battle of Columbus and, of course, the end of the war. Uh, and so uh, Lizzie Rutherford Ellis was the woman who was behind that. And there is a Confederate m- uh, monument in Columbus, Georgia, that was erected <clears throat> fairly shortly after the war was over. And it talks about uh, the idea, the principle behind which these men fought, and it was, quote, on the memorial itself uh, to perpetuate, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase, but to perpetuate the sovereignty of the states. Uh, and so it's a very simple memorial. A lot of the Confederate memorials that were produced later on in the 1880s and 90s were very elaborate. This one's just an obelisk, uh, and it has a, a, an inscription on it talking about uh, the cause of the South was to perpetuate the sovereignty of the states. Uh, so uh, this is a pretty interesting microcosm of what was happening. You know, we always know about Sherman and his uh, destructive path through Georgia and, and South Carolina, but not many people know about this march through Alabama, which was just as destructive uh, as the march through uh, Al- uh, Georgia and, and South Carolina. And uh, Columbus, Georgia, being a major city, just like Columbia, South Carolina, was burned after the city had surrendered. It was already over. The people of Columbus weren't resisting any longer, uh, but Wilson burned the city anyways. And so, and they looted the city and, and took every, almost everything they could, anything that wasn't nailed down, really, they took. So um, this goes to show that the Union policy, which uh, early in the war, you know, in regard to Southern civilians, Buell, General Buell, who was uh, behind this, uh, the early policy was one of conciliation, uh, you know, treat the Southern civilians kindly. That had shifted very quickly within a year or so to be a punitive policy uh, to inflict the war, uh, to inflict the, the, uh, the uh, perils of war and the anguish of war as much as they could on the civilian population. And that's because Southern civilians were resisting 
everywhere that the Union Army uh, landed. Um, so they, they didn't really like the fact that the Union Army was there. These were an alien people to them. And the women, more than anything else, more than the men, resisted. So last week was, again, a, a week of all kinds of anniversaries. Uh, it was also Thomas Jefferson's birthday last week. So uh, April 13th is Jefferson's birthday. So we had all these interesting things going on last week. Uh, and some, uh, but I wanted to focus on something that a lot of people don't know about. Everyone's familiar with, of course, uh, Lee's surrender and Lincoln's assassination, and then Jefferson's birthday. You know, Thomas Jefferson being who he is. But a lot of people don't know about this Battle of Columbus and this uh, this other march to uh, the river. I should say, not to the sea, but to the river. Uh, the march to the river from uh, the Union Army, and um, it's really uh, again a, a an event that shows. Uh, really uh, full-throated shows uh, Union policy during the war. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this uh, edition of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll, show. I'll see you next time.